I'm really excited you're here today. I've talked to so many people who are being engaged in this series of sermons on marriage. Met a lot of people who started attending the church to hear this series and thankful for what God's doing in people's lives. And we're saying marriage is like a team sport. Just like in team sports, all the players win. When the team wins, all the players lose. When the team loses, it's the same thing in marriage. You don't win by focusing on me. You win by making the we a priority, the marriage relationship a priority. And we started by talking about the importance of having a philosophy, just like a coach has a philosophy that says, this is what is important to me. This guides my decision-making, how I coach, the players I recruit. We need a philosophy in marriage, and God's philosophy is summarized in Genesis when he says that a man is to leave his father and mother, cleave or cling to his wife, and they become one flesh. It's that commitment. It's the we taking precedence over the me. That's God's philosophy for marriage, and that drives everything else we do. And just like a winning team has to have a good offense, score points, advance the ball, last week we talked about the importance of, of blessing your marriage. How are you on the offensive? How do you make your marriage better? Today we're going to talk about defense because in team sports you want to keep the opponent from scoring, moving the ball down the field, etc. And uh, in marriage you want to to keep the opponent, the the enemy, from defeating your marriage. You want to protect your marriage. And I, I need to be up front with you. Today's message is going to be the more difficult of the five messages in this sermon series. It's going to be a little bit more hard, if, if, if you will, okay, because it's going to deal with some tough stuff. And I just want to be very candid with you. We're going to talk about having a sexual attraction to someone who's not your spouse. We're going to talk about emotional affairs and actual sexual affairs and divorce. And that's, that's hard stuff. But it's important stuff. So we're going to talk about it today. And I want to say, say something because there are people in this room and others who are watching us on television that have been hurt by emotional infidelity or actual physical infidelity. People in this room who've experienced the trauma of divorce, I know that. I get that. And my goal is not to make you feel bad. And I know no matter how I teach this, in some ways you're going to relive some stuff and you're going to feel stuff just kind of coming up from deep within you. I get that. I understand that. And, and I wish I could prevent that, but that's reality. I know that. And I want you to know that God loves you And whatever your experience, whether you're the person that was unfaithful or your spouse was unfaithful, whatever the the past when it comes to your marriage, I want you to know God loves you. God is a forgiving God. God can heal when we allow him to. God can give us a life going forward. And I want you to, to look for that, to allow God to work in your life. But also, whatever the past situations are, you, you need to do some things to protect yourself in the future and to protect whatever marriage you may have or already are a part of going forward. So this message is relevant for all of us who are married and who want to be married. I want to say something to the teenagers and the college students and the young adults. There's going to be certain things in here at certain points I'm going to point out to you that are really important. I hope you'll listen because there are some people in this room right now who are very unhappy. There are some people in this room who want to cry. There are people in this room who've been through hell because they didn't do some of the things we're going to talk about. And it brought great pain to their life. And so when I come over and I say, teenagers, listen to me, uh, you're used to old people like me talking to you. I get that, okay? But I don't want you to go through what some people in this room have gone through. Would you all agree with that? Would you all agree with that? Because, yeah, listen, we don't have to learn everything the hard way. You, You don't have to hurt like hell 
to eventually be happy. And if we can do some things on the front side to prevent you from experiencing that, that's a good thing, and that's what I want for you. So that's my heart. Uh, that's my heart for you, okay? Now, having said all that, I want to begin by both sounding a warning and giving you some encouragement as it relates to that D word, divorce. So let's begin. How many marriages in America end in divorce? So y'all talked to people in the first service, didn't you? Now, how many of you have ever heard the, the, the statistic, 50%, half of all marriages end in divorce? You heard that? That's been real popular for the last 30, 40 years. It's a myth. It's not true. It's based on a bad mathematic formula that I won't waste time explaining, but it's a myth. 50% of marriages do not end in divorce. Now, it's still way too many, but it's not 50%. So just get that out on the front side. So the encouragement is half of marriages do not end in divorce. All right? Divorce actually increased in the 60s and 70s with the onset of no-fault divorce and uh, the liberal social advances and so, or if you can call them that, of the 60s and the 70s. And the, the, the divorce rate actually peaked in the late 70s and early 80s. More people born before 1955 divorced than people born after 1955. I know that's a shock to some, but that's the facts. Divorce peaked in the early 80s, and it's slightly declined since. Now, it's not declined dramatically, but it has declined. It's not continued to increase the way some predicted. George Barna's organization did a survey about a decade ago and discovered that 34% of the people who had ever been married had ever divorced. Now, that's people, not marriages, because some people go through multiple divorces. Excuse the numbers a little bit. It's difficult to know exactly how many or what percentage of marriages of people who get married divorce because the government a number of years ago stopped tracking that statistic. But the estimates, and there's a range, okay? You can go on the Internet and find people who will say anything. But the best social research indicates that the percentage of, of, of marriages, of people who actually get married that then actually divorce is somewhere, best social research is somewhere around the 35 to maybe 40% range. It's definitely not 50. But even if it is 35, 40%, that's still way too many, isn't it? Way, way too many marriages end in divorce. Now, the majority of people who get married do not divorce because, remember, the numbers are skewed by the people who get divorced more than once. And there's more of that than we realize. So about 35, I think probably around 35% of people is a pretty accurate number. Maybe 40% of marriages, but about 35% of people. But that's still one in three. And it's, and it's hard. Now, I want you to hear something. This is young people. Listen to me. 60% of all divorces happen in the first 10 years of marriage. 60%. Because it's in that first decade that you are merging two independent people. And the two me's are becoming we. And that requires some hard work and some adjustments. And those of us in the room who've been married many years will testify to the fact that we keep growing and keep learning. It never stops. The problem is during those challenging years of me becoming we, so many people in our fast food throwaway culture give up and don't fight through it and never learn how to become we. 
So remember that. Don't give up. Something else I want everybody to know. Divorce is more common in certain circumstances than others. It does not mean that if you find yourself in one of these circumstances, you cannot have a good marriage. My sister was married when she was 17 years old, and mom and dad had to sign for her to get married at that time. She had her high school degree. Well, she got a GED. It's not a great way to start. The statistics say she should be divorced. However, after all those years, she and her husband, Keith, are still married, and they have a number of grandkids. Okay? So it can work. But we know for a fact that divorce is more common among people who get married really young. Well, why is that? Well, if I'm 25 or 30, I've learned some stuff. I've grown in ways. I've matured in ways. I have it when I'm 17, 18, and 20. Makes sense, right? So more people who marry young divorce than people who wait a little bit to, to, to grow up a little bit. Secondly, we know that divorce is more common among people who don't go to college. Makes sense? Why? Because we also know that on average, there are exceptions. On average, college graduates make more money than none than people who don't go to college. There's exceptions. There's exceptions to everything, right? But on average, college graduates make more money. And one of the big stressors on marriage, especially among young people, is finances. I hear it all the time when they sit in my office. They come into marriage with all these debts, all these credit card debts. They don't learn how to have a budget, and it stresses the relationship. So just be conscious of those things. I'm not saying if you get married at 18 and don't go to college, you can't have a great marriage. My sister is an example that you can. But I'm saying it's tougher. We also know that people are more likely to divorce if they come from homes where their parents divorced. Doesn't mean you're guaranteed to divorce, but it means it's tougher. Why? Because you did not have role models growing up of a mom and dad who knew how to have a great marriage. So where are you going to learn how to have one? So some people find themselves in difficult challenges from the get-go. Well, you're not going to overcome that if you're not aware of that. You're not going to own it and say, all right, because of that, maybe I need to work on some things. I need to talk to some people. I need to get some, I need to, I need some support if you don't understand those are challenges that you may be facing. That's why I share that with you. Now, what I want to do, before we get to some of the practical suggestions for protecting your marriage, and we're going to talk today specifically about how do you protect your marriage in this whole realm of attraction to someone of the opposite sex who's not your spouse that can lead to either a physical affair or an emotional affair. But before we do that, I want to give you some biblical principles. Because everything we do to protect our marriage needs to be guided by, built on the foundation of, or grounded in, if you will, biblical principles. I want to begin by talking about God's will for you and your marriage. God's will for me and my marriage to Monisa. God's will for all of us. Okay, And if you have your Bible, and I hope you do, we're going to look at several verses, so I hope you'll, you'll, you'll have your Bible. And I may need to bring the lights up just for a little bit uh, while we look at these Bible verses because I really want you to see these. They're not all going to be on the screen. 
We're going to start in 1 Thessalonians in your New Testament, chapter 4. And if you're not familiar with the Bible, the New Testament starts with Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and you're going through Acts and Romans, and, and you'll see Corinthians and Galatians, and eventually you'll come to that book of 1 Thessalonians. Before Timothy, if you get to Timothy, Hebrews, you've gone too far. So 1 Thessalonians, chapter 4. I want us to look at God's will as explained in verses 3 and following of this chapter in the Bible. Here's God's will for us and our marriage, Okay. This is the will of God. That's what he says. This is the will of God. Your sanctification. What does that mean? That is that you abstain from sexual immorality. The Bible teaches that for you to have a sexual relationship with anyone who is not your husband or wife is sexual immorality. It is a sin. And God says that's not his will for you. You're not to do that. Now he goes on. Verse 4. That each of you know how to possess his own vessel, his own body, in sanctification and honor. God says it's my responsibility to learn how to control my body. It's your responsibility to learn how to control your body and all of its impulses and passions. He says in verse 5, here's what you do. Not in lustful passion like the Gentiles who do not know God. That you're not to be like people in this culture who do not know God that say, hey, I feel it so it's okay. I want it, it's okay. You are to control your passions. You are to control your body. Not like, you know, everybody out there in culture. You know, whether it's people you know, friends, whether it's co-workers, pop music, movie. It doesn't matter. You're not to be like them, God says, when it comes to his will for your life. And he goes on in verse 6 and says, That no man transgress or defraud his brother in the matter, because the Lord is the avenger of all these things, just as we also told you before and solemnly warned you. When you have a sexual affair, you're defrauding people. You are defrauding your spouse. You are defrauding the spouse of the person you're having the affair with if they're married. You are defrauding, if they're single, you are defrauding the person that God has for them to marry in the future. And God says His will is that we don't do that to one another. Verse 7, For God has not called us for the purpose of impurity, but in sanctification. And he who rejects this is not rejecting man, but to God who gives His Holy Spirit to you. Now, anybody who's been in church a long time, you know this. But I believe it's important for us to be reminded in today's culture especially that God has expectations. That God has a will for us when it comes to our sexual lives, to our marriage, our relationship with our spouse. Now, we're sinners. David in the Old Testament, after God's own heart, committed adultery. He was a sinner. God forgives and God heals. But listen, the forgiveness of God does not remove the pain. does not mean that people are not hurt and that lives are not damaged badly. It's simply the mercy and grace of God that says, I will take you from this mess you have made, and if you allow me to, Build a life going forward. It's not the life I originally wanted for you, but it's the life that I can make for you given the circumstances. Okay? God is a forgiving God. God is a healing and helping and loving God. But God's will is purification, faithfulness. We know that. But sometimes in this messed up culture, we need to be reminded of that. Something else, you're, you're in First Thessalonians, 
just go forward through the book of, of uh, Timothy and Titus and Philemon, and you'll come to the book of Hebrews and look at chapter 13, verse 4. He says, Marriage is to be held in honor among all, and the marriage bed is to be undefiled. Keep the marriage bed pure, clean. So, first biblical principle that needs to dictate how we protect our marriage is this is God's will for us, so what do I need to do to protect myself from sexual sin, sexual immorality? What do I need to do to protect my marriage from unfaithfulness, from sexual immorality? That's a biblical principle. So whatever you do to protect your marriage, this is the outcome you're looking for. This is what you're trying to do on defense. Protect your marriage from sexual infidelity. Now, here's a second biblical thing that you need to know, and it's this. The Bible says your marriage, whether you know it or not, your marriage has enemies. You have an opponent that's trying to score, an enemy that is trying to defeat you in this game called marriage. Your marriage... Listen to me, mine and Monisa's marriage, your mar- every marriage has enemies. You're in the book of Hebrews, the next book is James, and then you'll go through Peter, keep turning forward till you come to 1 John. Let's look at some of those enemies of marriage. 1 John chapter 2, okay, 1 John chapter 2, look at verse 16. He says, all that is in the world, The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. The world is an enemy of your marriage. The world is this world system that is influenced by Satan. The world is modern, popular culture. Culture, in many ways, is an enemy of a great marriage. For instance... Guys, hold off on the next slide for a minute, okay? Just stay where you are on the slides. Who is the top-selling, the best-selling romance novelist in America today? Who do you think? Give me a guess. Loudly, I can't hear you up here. Daniel Steele? Daniel Steele is the top-selling romance. Go ahead and go to the next slide now. She's the top-selling romance novelist in America today. She sold more than 800 million books. Listen. She is the best-selling author alive on planet Earth today. She has sold more books than J.K. Rowling and Harry Potter, a lot more, okay, a lot more books. She, listen, not only is she the top-selling author alive today, she is the number four-selling author in history. Number one, Shakespeare. Number two, Agatha Christie. I forget the third dude. She's number four in history. Romance novelist. We, we get our images and ideas of romance and love from books and movies and culture. All right. Best-selling romance novelist in history. How many times has she been married and divorced? What's your guess? Shout a number out. Everybody, what's your number? Some of y'all thinking because I'm bringing this up, it has to be really bad. <laughs> Five. Five. The best-selling romance novelist of all time has been married and divorced five times? Why would anybody listen to her to figure out what romance is? 
trying to figure out what real romance is from someone like her is like going to a blind man and saying, can you teach me how to drive? That's just not smart. And God says the world, this culture that is influenced by the evil one is your enemy. And will not teach you how to have a great marriage. And so if you think you're going to get your ideas about romance and love and sex and a good marriage from pop culture, you're nuts. Can I say that? I just did. Because the culture doesn't have a clue. And a wise person realizes that. You know who created marriage? God performed the very first wedding. You want to have a good one? Listen to him. You know who else is your enemy in this verse? Yourself. I'm an enemy of my own marriage. You are an enemy of your marriage. Because he says everything in this world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, that's talking about me. That's talking about you. See, I'm saved. Holy Spirit lives within me, but I still have this sinful nature. I'm still in the flesh. I, I'm, I'm going to be in this flesh and sinful nature until Jesus raises me from the dead and I get rid of this old body and get a new spiritual glorified body like his body. I'm subject to temptation and sin, and so are you. Lust of the flesh, those physical impulses, those urges, those wants, Lust of the eyes like King David in the Old Testament walking out on the balcony one day and looking and seeing this beautiful woman named Bathsheba and his eyes got big and he said, I want her. He lusted for her and an affair happened because of it. We see things. We want things. The pride of life. I deserve that. I ought to have that. The pride of life that says... Me? I'm strong. I can't fall. I don't need any of this stuff. It doesn't apply to me. I'm strong. I can handle anything. I'm, I've got it together. God says if you think you can stand, take heed lest you fall. So two biblical principles. One, God's will for marriage is that we protect it from sexual immorality. Secondly, the Bible teaches that your marriage has enemies. First Peter. You're in First John. Just go back. The book before that is Second Peter. The one before that is First Peter. Look at First Peter chapter five, verse eight. Be sober, be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. You have an enemy of marriage, and it's called the devil. And if he is the prince of the power of the air who manipulates this culture to bring about sin and evil and destruction, listen, he will manip manipulate this culture and he will man manipulate the people in this world to do you in if you allow it. He's your enemy. It's not your friend. And he'd love to see you in divorce court. He'd love to see you have to sit down with your wife or husband and confess to an affair and the pain and the drama and the tears and the destruction. He'd love that in your life. He's your enemy. 
And so we need a strategy. We need strategies to protect ourselves against those known enemies of marriage. And the first part of your strategy is found in that same verse, verse 8, when he says, Be of sober spirit and be on the alert. Be sober. Don't walk around like a somebody in a drunken stupor. Be on the alert like a night watchman, paying attention. You need to see when the enemy's coming. You need to see when danger is approaching you. You need to see when you're at risk so you can respond. Because if you don't pay attention, you're not on the alert, you're not sober, you'll fall into the ditch. You know, any car, uh, it doesn't matter if it's one you paid $2,500 for at the used lot or one you paid $100,000 for, a high-end car, any car, doesn't matter, any car will run off the road if you take your hands off the steering wheel or your eyes off the highway. Have you, have you figured that out? Any marriage, if you don't stay alert and pay attention, can end up in the ditch. Any man, any woman, any Christian who doesn't pay attention and stay alert can end up in the ditch. Proverbs 16, 18, pride goes before destruction, a haughty spirit before stumbling. You think, I can't fall. I can't be tempted. You tell yourself you're above all this. You don't need this sermon. You're okay. You got it together. You don't need any of the practical suggestions I'm going to make. You refuse to set boundaries to protect yourself. You refuse to put a put some buffer zones in place to protect your marriage. You, you refuse to be a, accountable to your spouse, to be submissive and accountable to your spouse. You've you, you, you're so proud you can't do any of those things. You don't need any of those things. God says that makes you susceptible to a fall. Another thing the Bible says about our strategy, 2 Timothy 2:22, flee from youthful lust, pursue righteousness with those who call on the name of the Lord from a pure heart. God says sometimes your strategy needs to be running away. See, part of your strategy means I need to be alert to those things from which I need to get out of town, get out of Dodge, so to speak. And part of my strategy needs to be that I'm equally, just as passionately running toward God, running toward righteousness so that I can call on God out of a pure heart. Now, we're going to get to the practical stuff right now. But those biblical teachings, biblical principles about marriage need to be the foundation on which you develop the strategies designed to protect your marriage from sexual infidelity, whether it's actual physical infidelity or emotional infidelity. And guys, hear me. Don't have time to go into the psychological reasoning for it, but guys, if you're smart, you'll believe this. You'll listen to it. An emotional affair devastates a woman like a physical affair. Now, you may not get that as a guy, but you better believe it because it's true. A wise man will hear that. A fool will ignore it. And that needs to be part of your boundaries you put in place, protecting yourself as a man from that. We'll talk about that in a second. Now, 
I, I don't have time. I've got, I know that says two minutes. I've got seven minutes left based on when we started the service. I've got seven minutes left. And I've got three months of stuff to say. And so the only enemy I can talk about, and I don't have time to talk about it the way I need to, is this attraction, sexual attraction to someone else and how you protect yourself from that. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to write a blog post every day this week about other enemies and strategies. And if you're interested, I just encourage you tomorrow tomorrow morning to go to my blog and each day this week, and I'll write a different article, a different blog post each week about enemies and strategies that don't have anything to do with this particular enemy, others that I didn't have time to deal with today, okay? So put that out there for you. Now, um, t- about 20%, about 20% of married people cheat on their spouse at least once during their marriage. You've heard all kinds of numbers, but it's about 20%. Somewhere around another 20% of marriages are hurt by an emotional affair where you become conversationally and emotionally intimately connected to someone of the opposite sex sharing personal details and really you you start you, you may not cross the line into the physical act but man you get so close to them emotionally you're, you're putting your toe right up against it that cuts to the heart of a marriage and that is betraying your spouse because that is the relationship you are to have with your spouse not with another woman or another man that's being unfaithful that's getting at what Jesus meant when he said, when you look on a woman and lust after her, you've committed adultery in your heart. Most affairs originate in certain places. Work, that's the traditional place because you're together as co-workers so much and start having lunch together and start talking, sharing details about your life and your marriage and complaining about your spouse and, oh, they're sympathetic and on and on. And that psychological issue called transference takes place. Another commonplace that's really growing today is via social media, particularly Facebook. I've recently dealt with a couple who one had an affair that started over conversations on Facebook. That's a growing, a growing trend. A lot of affairs start because of social activities together. Individuals or couples, recreational activities, friends, being together and not having some boundaries in place. Starts with conversation and it may even be joking conversation, but gradually the conversations become more personal and more intimate. Flirting is often a beginning place. Sometimes flirting in a humorous way, but it, over time, opens doors. It, it happens because you start spending time together alone. Big red flag. So how do you protect yourself and your marriage from falling into these traps? Well, you need to set some boundaries in place. You need to put some boundaries between you and uh, someone of the opposite sex who's not your spouse. And so I want to share with you some specifics, some boundaries to consider putting in place. And some of you will do some of these, some of you won't. You know, and some of you will find ways to personalize things in your own life. I get that. That's up to you. But I pray you'll listen and take seriously what I'm getting ready to say. Here's some boundaries to protect your marriage. Don't be alone with someone of the opposite sex. For lunch... 
for dinner, in a car, for exercise, even jogging together. Period. Especially if it's something that happens more than once. That needs to be, I'm, just, I'm saying that needs to be a buffer in your life when you're, once you're married. And I know certain work situations can make that challenging. But there's other things you can add to that to help with that. But you better have a buffer. Because remember, you and your spouse grew to like and love each other through time together. That's the way human psychology and human emotions work. Here's another one. Do not discuss intimate issues and personal matters with someone of the opposite sex who's not your spouse. Don't have conversations with that person that should be held with your spouse. When you start talking about your marriage and issues in your marriage with someone of the opposite sex, you're playing with fire. Don't do it. One of the buffers you need to put in place is you don't talk about marriage issues with another person who's not of the same sex. That's a buffer. That's, that's, a, that's, that's, that's a boundary. Here's another one. Stop the flirting. Because flirting, whether we meet it or not, says to other people, you're available. Don't keep secrets from your spouse, especially as it relates to other people of the opposite sex. Don't keep secrets. Be transparent. One of the things I try to do with Monisa and she can vouch for this, is when I do counseling, I tell her who I meet with. I don't give her all the details of the counseling session, and I'm saying this candidly because that's a, that's a buffer, that's a barrier, that's a border, that's a boundary. If I meet with you as a woman in my office for counseling, one of the buffers is I'll tell her. I met with so-and-so. What does that mean in your life? Do not keep secrets, especially as it relates to someone of the opposite sex, from your wife or from your husband. That transparency helps you. Be accountable to your spouse. And like I said a few weeks ago, your spouse should have all your passwords to your social media accounts. Your spouse should be able to pick up your iPhone or take your laptop and look at your Facebook page, your email, your text messages anytime he or she wants to. That is being submissive. That is being accountable. That is saying we matters more than me. And an unwillingness to do that says me matters too much and it is a sign of pride, not humility. In marriage, we are one flesh. And if you're ever going to have an intimate, decade-lasting, growing, blessing, great, marriage you're not afraid for your spouse to know your life because you've got nothing to hide we are we is that clear enough ladies use discretion in how you dress oh he says his no listen god made men so that they are easily stimulated and pop culture may say, dress however you want. 
But I'll tell you, about 65% of the time when Jennifer Lopez walks out on the American Idol stage, she's sinning by how she's dressed. And you can do what you want to with that. But God says you don't get your standards from the culture, from the world, from the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes. You get it from thus saith the Lord, sexual purity. Do you want to honor God or do you want to honor Satan? Use discretion in how you dress. Boundaries. Jake had been married four years, wanted that promotion at work, so he worked long hours, evenings, kept him away from home. The only thing that made it tolerable was his co-worker, Mandy. She always encouraged him, you're doing a good job. She complimented him. She was a little bit flirtatious, and in time they started having lunch together. And over time, their lunch conversation moved from work to more personal stuff and more personal stuff. And, and after a while, he found himself returning the compliments and returning the flirtations. And one day, Jake told his wife he'd had lunch with Mandy. His wife got mad and jealous. Duh. And Jake said to himself, well, if she's going to react like that, it means she doesn't really understand how good a friend Mandy is, so I just won't tell her anymore when I have lunch with Mandy. I'll keep it a secret from her. Well, the first time when he told his wife that he had lunch with Mandy, good decision, smart guy. Her reaction of being angry and jealous, should have expected it. He crossed the line, broken the buffer zone, the barrier, the border. Should have expected her to be uncomfortable. When he said, I'm going to keep having lunch with Mandy and keep it a secret from my wife, dumb, dumb, and dumber. Because that should have been a red flag that said, whoa, I need to back up from this and I'm not doing that anymore. And anytime I have contact with her, I need to let my wife know I had contact with her. That would be the smart guy. That would be the guy that says, you know what? I value we. I want a great marriage that lasts and works. But the proudful guy will say, no, I'm not doing anything like that. Boundaries. Buffer zones. You know, th think, of, think of a refusal, a refusal to have boundaries as being like somebody looking down the barrel of a loaded gun. He's likely to get what he's looking for. Let me give you some warning signs that maybe you've walked up to that buffer zone, that line in the sand, so to speak, and you're kind of sticking your toe over it. You maybe not have moved into an actual full-fledged affair, but, man, you're up here, you're, 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 you're sticking your foot over there. What does it feel like? What does it feel like? What does it feel like? Here's some warning signs. That's where you may be. Your conversations with that person include things that should be kept between you and your spouse. You're sticking your toe over the line. You find yourself daydreaming about that person. You're starting to withdraw from your spouse, spouse, either emotionally or physically. You're now looking for excuses or reasons to see that person, to talk to the person, to bump into the person. Change your plans, your routine from time to time so you can bump into them. You know, sticking your foot over the line. You're sharing very personal thoughts, personal feelings, personal problems with them instead of sharing it with your spouse. You're convinced, you've, you've convinced yourself that your spouse, that, that, that your friend understands you so much better than most people, so much better than your spouse. You're sticking your foot over the line when there's 
ongoing flirtations and sexual tension between the two of you. When you're looking for legal ways to touch the other one, brush the lint off the shoulder, help them put the coat on so you can have that first physical touch. Start paying attention to how you look if you know you're going to see them. If there's any secrecy between you and your spouse as it relates to that person, and you start comparing that person, him or her, to your spouse, and usually your spouse comes out on the short end. You're sticking your foot over. You see, you know what boundaries are? Having these boundaries in place so that you protect your marriage, protect yourself. Boundaries are like locking the front door of your house. How many of you lock your door at night when you go to bed? How many of you lock your door when you leave? How many of you, your car out in the parking lot right now, the door is locked? Let me think, oh, I, I wonder, I should have. Boundaries are like locking the door to your marriage. And when you won't lock the door, you won't put boundaries in place, you leave the door unlocked, you leave the door cracked, saying to the thief, easy entry. Make it hard on them. Hard on yourself. Lock the door. Put some boundaries in place. Listen, all the love and trust in the world won't help if you leave the front door unlocked and don't take care of the basics. Well, let me wrap this up. Boundaries are like a security system, an alarm on your house. Right now at our house, our security system is armed. If someone tried to break into our house right now, the whole neighborhood would know it. The alarms would go off, the security system, the security people would be notified and police would show up at my house. It's armed and dangerous. It's armed and ready. Okay? We go to bed at night, security alarm is set. Every, 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 every time we leave our house, we set the alarm. It's just our routine. Having boundaries, these buffer zones, it's like setting the alarm on your marriage. So you're on the alert, and all of a sudden, somebody's trying to pry the door or the window open. Alarm sounds, and you're able to respond before it's too late. Boundaries are like an insurance policy on your marriage. How many of you, how many of you have insurance on your house? How many of you have insurance on your car? How many of you have insurance on your wife's jewelry? <laughs> yeah, I know you're paying That came out wrong, didn't it? I'm sorry, baby. <laughs> eh, sometimes my eye personality type gets me in trouble. Some of you guys know my pain, don't you? <laughs> yep. It'll be a really good lunch today. <laughs> insurance. Why aren't you willing to put some insurance on your marriage? Because that's what a buffer zone, some boundaries, that's what they are. It's insurance on your marriage. It's protecting it. Do you, do you love your spouse? Do you love your marriage? Do you care about the we? Then protect it. 
name of Jesus Christ, protect it. Don't leave it open and vulnerable. Don't make it susceptible to any and all attacks. Protect it. And like I said, and some of you already dealt with a lot of trauma. You can't fix that. It's happened. But you can protect where you are today going forward. And that's what you need to focus on. That's what you need to do. Protect what you have. Last word. Something Jesus said in Luke 16. He said, He who is faithful in a very little thing is faithful also in much. He who is unrighteous in a very little thing is unrighteous also in much. Jesus says there is a connection between the little things and big things in life. He said the little things are a predictor of how you'll deal with the big things. Little things lead to big things, good or bad. You see, marriage is a big thing. These practical suggestions like last week on offense, how do you bless your marriage, a lot of those were little things, right? That end up making the big thing, the marriage, happy and healthy and good. How do you protect your marriage? Little things. Don't eat lunch with someone of the opposite sex alone. Little thing. Don't talk about your marriage with somebody of the opposite sex unless it's to brag on your spouse. Little thing. Little thing. Some situation makes you a little bit uncomfortable. Tell your spouse. Be accountable. Little things. Little things. Will prevent the bad, big things. And enable the good, big things. Now, we're going to have our invitation. So I want you to go ahead and stand up. And I know, so let me just say it. Anytime I preach on adultery or anything like this, sexual sins, very few people are going to come to the altar. I know that. Okay? Because you're going to think, I'm afraid if I go down there, they'll all think I'm doing that. I get that. Okay? But if you feel led to come to this altar for any reason, come. Because people are going to be coming for a lot of different reasons to pray about their marriage, pray about their openness to grow or specific areas where they need to grow. People come to this altar and pray about somebody who's sick or for another marriage, a relative who's struggling and, and they're burdened. So if you feel led to come, come. And if, to join this church, pastors are here at the front. Come and say to one of these pastors, I want to join First Baptist Church. But I want to suggest something. When we sing this song, if you're willing to make a commitment to God and to your spouse, to your marriage, say, you know what, I love you. And I'm making a, a fresh commitment today to, to play defense. I just want you to know I care about the we, care about us enough that I, I commit to you right now that I'm going to play defense. And I, I want some boundaries in my life. I'm going to protect me and I'm going to protect we. And that means something to me. When we sing this song, just reach out and grab your, your wife or your husband's hand and give it a squeeze. And in so doing, say, I'm, I'm, I'm renewing my commitment to you and to our marriage and to, to, to protecting us and to these boundaries. And maybe the two of you need to, this afternoon, have a tough conversation. So you can have a fresh starting point. 
so that the future can be different than the past. And maybe that's not an easy conversation, but boy, it could be a, a really good one and in the end, in the long run, be a beautiful thing because of what would come out of it. Because sometimes you have to deal with the hard stuff to get eventually to the really beautiful stuff. Okay? Okay? And I'm not trying to discourage anybody. I want to help you. But we don't help ourselves if we stick our head in the sand. It doesn't work, does it? All right. I'm going to pray. When I say amen, we're going to start singing and you start coming. Pastors are here. Father, thank you for loving us. And I thank you, God, for forgiving and healing us. And I also thank you for giving us the wisdom to do the things we need to do to honor you and to bless life. Help each of us in this room right now to do what you are prompting us to do in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's sing together.